After one of my first sermons that I'd ever preached here at Emmanuel Faith, I, I had to do the thing that every young preacher has to do, and that is sit down with the senior pastor and debrief the sermon. Well, in this case, it was someone you may remember. His name is Dennis Keating. And if, for those of you who are new here, he was our senior pastor here for many years, and he was an, an incredible leader. Uh, he would sit down with us and he would debrief the sermon. Now, uh, we would get done, we'd preach our hearts out. And, and I, I, I got to this one point after this one sermon and I thought, this is the one. This is the one where he's just gonna look at me and said, well, Josh, well done. I couldn't have done it better myself. He didn't say that, <laughs> he never said that. In fact, he always found something that could make the sermon better. And I love that about him. I came to really love that time with him. It was, it was great the way that he sharpened me and us as preachers. And so one time though, he, uh, after preaching that sermon, he looks at me and says, now, Josh, you said that grace is incredible. And I said, yep, sure did. And he says, uh, do you know what that means? And I kind of got confused. I looked and I said, um, I think so. And then he says, I, I don't think you do. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. Well, I thought to myself, well then enlighten me, oh wise one. And sure enough, he did. He said that the, the word incredible, um, the, the root word or the, 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 the prefix of incredible is in. And that is a Latin word, he tells me. And that Latin word means not. And so incredible actually means not credible. To say that something is incredible is actually to say that it is not something to be believed. It is not credible. And I was saying that grace is not credible. And so I guess I didn't know what it meant after all. So what I was trying to say is that grace is amazing, that grace is outstanding, uh, even that, that grace is extraordinary, right? And, and actually come to find out, I looked at a dictionary and he was right. He was usually right. And sure enough, uh, that was the original meaning. Now there's a casual meaning to it that does mean amazing. Uh, that does mean that it is extraordinary. It means that it is something that, that is hard to believe. And actually today, I wanna use that word incredible. And actually I want you to think about both those meanings. Uh, one, a meaning that is not credible, it is difficult to believe, and, and one that is hard to believe, but yet it is extraordinary because I actually want to tell you, I want to invite you today to believe the incredible. I want you to believe that which is incredible. <laughs> you see in our, our passage today, um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. Okay, we're going to be starting in verse 33. I'd love it if you join me in Matthew 21 here. And, uh, and we're going to be continuing this study in the parables, the parables in the book of Matthew. And uh, we're calling this essential stories. And this is one of these essential stories. Um, we're going to be, see that here Jesus says some pretty incredible things. 
In fact, uh, the religious leaders that he's talking to, that he's telling these stories to, they really thought that this was not credible. They thought that there's no way that this Jesus person uh, had any credibility at all. And what I want to tell you is that, yes, it is hard to believe it, but I want to ask you to believe the incredible. What we're going to see is that that this comes at a time that is kind of like a turning point in Jesus's ministry, okay? Matthew 21 is a turning point, okay? We saw last week, it starts, Matthew 21 begins with the triumphal entry when they're declaring Jesus as king. And it ends in verse 46 uh, with them, the religious leaders saying, hey, uh, we need to arrest this guy. So they started uh, with praising him as king and it ends with them planning to arrest him. What we'll see though is that this isn't just a turning point in the story. This is actually a tripping point. In fact, I'm going to call this sermon the tripping point for that very reason. And really it comes because Jesus says that he is the tripping point. He says in verse 44 of Matthew 21, anyone who falls on this stone, okay? Earlier he says, he's the stone. He says, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. He's realizing that the the, the claims that he is making in this text, the claims that we're gonna hear today, he's realizing that they are incredible. They're hard to believe. And he's recognizing that it might be too incredible for some people, and it might even make them trip. I don't want us to trip over these truths today. So let's dive in to Matthew 21. In verse 33, Jesus begins by saying, listen to another parable, okay? Reminding us that this is just one of many parables that he's telling to the same group of people. Uh, There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. Now, hold your finger right there for just a minute uh, because this is the third parable now that Jesus is telling in the setting of a vineyard. And, And just in case it wasn't completely clear before in the earlier parables that Jesus was referring uh, to the Jewish people by the, this idea of the vineyard, Jesus makes it very clear here in this passage. And he does that by referencing a passage in Isaiah five. He says this, the, the verse goes on. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press and built a watchtower. See, those are all three, uh, pieces of imagery that happen in Isaiah chapter five. And that passage ends in verse seven with this, this, it says this, that the vineyard of the Lord, of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. Okay, so it is very clear that the vineyard is referring to the nation of Israel. Jesus doesn't want them to be confused by the fact that that's what he's talking about here. The vineyard is God's people. But notice what he says. He goes on to say, then the, the, the landowner, he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Now, in the logic of the parable, the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to, he's going to show them that they are the ones who have rented. They are the, the tenants of the vineyard. Okay, in other words, they're the ones who are supposed to take care of the vineyard. They are supposed to take care of God's people, the Jewish nation the nation of Israel. Um, But notice, 
He goes on, uh, verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants, to the religious leaders, to collect his fruit. The tenants, verse 35, seized the ser- his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then the owner sent other servants to them more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Uh, Last of all, he sent his son to them, saying this, they will respect my son. So here, this landowner sends not just one group of servants, two groups of servants, the second one greater than the first, and then he sends his son, his own son. This brings me to the first tripping point. The first point that, that I think can trip us up when we t- think about God, we think about faith, we think about this book and all that it means for us. And that first tripping point is the Father's unrelenting love. That actually His love may be a tripping point for us. Because why in the world? Would if the father, would, would this landowner, uh, why would he continually send servants? Why didn't he just crush them the first time? Why did he send more and more? Why did he continue to do this? So in the, once again, the logic of this parable, the, the servants that he's sending are the prophets of old, the prophets that God had sent um, throughout all of what we call the Old Testament, that, that those are the, the servants that God had sent. And sure enough, God's people, they abused them. They killed them. They, they beat them. They stoned them. This is the way that God's people treated God's servants. And yet God kept sending. He kept sending and he kept doing that. And that's the way God has been. And, and the place where this gets to be a tripping point is that we can start asking the questions, can that really be true? Could it possibly be true that there is a God that loves me that much? I mean, have you met me? This this can't be true. And and especially a God that calls himself a father because I've had a father and, and my father didn't love me that much. This can be unbelievable. This can sound incredible. And yet, this is one of the, the resounding truths of Scripture. This book, you can't read it without recognizing that there is a God who calls himself Father, who loves you and continues to love you no matter what. However, the truth is that this is a tripping point for many people. And I want you today, and I want to invite you to believe the incredible. Jesus picks back up the parable here in verse 38. He says, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, there's some parables that Jesus tell that are um, really veiled in their meaning. In other words, uh, they're, they're kind of hard to understand, and he's doing that intentionally to kind of almost to, to trick the, the religious leaders. Okay? This isn't one of them. 
This one, he is being very clear about what he's saying here. In fact, uh, everyone here would know who he's talking about when he's talking about the son. Uh, he's talking about himself. And we know that because in just a few days later, the high priest himself is going to accuse Jesus of claiming to be the son of God. And sure enough, uh, when he admits it, uh, this high priest tears his clothes and then they crucify him. So uh, the son is referring to Jesus here. And that fact in and of itself was just way too much for the religious leaders of that, that day to comprehend. It was just way too much for them. It was not credible. So it was an incredible idea and concept. And they, it was incredible to them because they were very important people. Here they were as people who had worked hard to, to be in the position they were in. And so who was this nobody from nowhere to come and tell them that he, they are the, that he is the son? That, that would make no sense to them. You see, who was he to say that he was somebody special? You see, they tripped over the, the second tripping point in this passage. And that second one is Jesus's unlikely prominence. You see, Jesus should not have been as important as he was claiming to be. And they kind of knew that. Now, from our perspective, of course, Jesus is the most important figure in all of history. And, and from our perspective, as we look back on history, he's had a huge impact. But you gotta remember, uh, from the religious leader's perspective, in those days, Jesus was just this nobody from nowhere. Sure enough, he grew up in this obscure village, in, in the middle of a, of a very small country, in, in the middle of the Roman Empire. He grew up in another small village. For most of his life, he worked as a carpenter. And then for three short years, he was an itinerant preacher, preaching up and down that one little country. He, uh, he never wrote a book. He never held any office. Uh, he never owned a home. He never had a family. He never had any higher education. He never tr even traveled more than 200 miles from where he was born. He never did any of the things that typically accompany greatness. And, and do you realize that when they crucified him, that the executioners, they gambled all over his only possession in life, the clothes on his back. And then when he died, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. He had nothing. From their perspective, he was nobody. And so why this guy? Why is he so important? Hey, hey, Christian, why do you talk about Jesus so much? Why is everything always about Jesus? Let's face it, Jesus is maybe the biggest of the tripping points that people just can't get past, that they fall over Jesus. He knew that, and he told us that. So the question is, why does he matter so much? 
I'm sure that uh, this is what the religious leaders were thinking right there. And Jesus gives them more reason to ask that. In verse 42, uh, Jesus said to them, uh, have you never read the scriptures? <laughs> now, uh, whenever he says that in the New Testament, uh, he always then takes them to a passage that they would have known really well. A well-known passage they probably even had memorized. They had taught this passage, but then he reinterprets it according to his mission. And here he takes them to Psalm 118. Now this is important in the context of Matthew because in Matthew 21, uh, right, right there during the, the triumphal entry, the crowds, they were chanting a part of Psalm 118. And here, uh, there, there they, they chanted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, that's Psalm 118, verse 26. Jesus now quotes to them, uh, Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. 22 says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now he's saying, that is me. I am the stone that you rejected. And then there's a wordplay here, okay, in, in the original language, the language that Jesus would have been speaking here, the wordplay has to do with stone and sun, okay? In Hebrew, they sound very, very similar. And so it's very clear to them. When he says that I am the stone, that the sun is the stone, they knew exactly what he's talking about. They would have been angry at this. They would have been mad. In other words, what he's saying is that you're, you're going to reject me, and I'm going to become the center of all things. I'm going to become the cornerstone. And all of God's kingdom, all that he is doing in his vineyard is going to be based around me, Jesus is saying. Passage goes on to say, the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. In other words, the Lord has even caused you to reject me. And your rejection is actually going to be the thing that makes me the cornerstone. And that is awesome, is what he's saying. But now there's a lot that's marvelous in this passage. And I think one of the many things that is marvelous in this is that we're still talking about Jesus today. Today, there are millions and millions of people gathered around talking about Jesus today. And do you realize that there is no good reason as to why we even know the name of this nobody from nowhere, except for the fact that maybe what he was talking about is actually true. Who he says he is, is actually who he actually is. Uh, the things that we read about in this book actually happened. That's the only reason, that's the only rational reason why we would even know his name today. If he were just some crackpot from the middle of nowhere, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And yet, the truth is, that if you add up all of the leaders, the teachers, of the philosophers, of the preachers, of the thinkers, the armies and the navies and the parliaments and the kings and the presidents and all of them together, if you put them all together, they would not have the influence of this one poor, penniless carpenter There's just something about Jesus, right? I'm asking you, believe the incredible because Jesus 
is incredible. Now the third tripping point that I see here in this passage is, is a bit of a downer. I mean, sure, God loved us enough to send the prophets to us, to, to, to send his own son to us, but do you remember what they did to him? They killed him, they killed the prophets. They beat him, they stoned him, and they even killed the son. I want you to realize something, and that is that God's love for his creation is only seen as something that is incredible because of how bad his creation really is. And yet, that's a tripping point for us. The tripping point is that is our unthinkable, our unthinkable wickedness. We are unthinkably wi wicked. Can I, can I just be honest? I'm unthinkably wicked. It's a hard thing to say. I, I have to admit it, but I don't like it. And I, I, don't, I don't really know that deep down, I even believe it. Now, here's the thing. You, you might say to me after I say that I'm unbelievably wicked. You might say to me, no, Josh, you're not that bad. Now, and I would say, hey, I, I hope you don't think I'm that bad. You know why? Because I've worked really hard to hide all of that wickedness. I have. I've worked really hard to look good in front of you and in front of people. I don't want to deal with my own wickedness. I don't want anyone to see my own wickedness. And so I hide it. I've learned that from a young age. We all do. We've all hid that stuff and we don't want to deal with it. But apparently the attitude that we need to have about our sin is the same one that Paul has. In, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I mean, now, let's just think about that. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, and I just want to say that doesn't seem fair. This is the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote, you know, most of the New Testament, uh, the guy that evangelized the known world at, at his time. I mean, the guy that like healed people, that people walked up and touched his clothes and they got healed. That guy is saying that he is the worst of all sinners. I mean, this isn't even a competition between us, right? And so if he says that, what does that say about me? What does that say about us? And this is where this can really become a tripping point for us, especially when we start thinking to ourselves like, yeah, I'm not that bad. <laughs> I mean, I haven't done any of those bad things that they do, that the other people do. And in fact, this is often a tripping point for us whenever, whenever, especially when we talk about the type of sins that Jesus is mentioning here. Because you got to remember, these are generational sins. Jesus is pointing out something that those specific people didn't do. Okay, if you remember, um, Jesus implies that these people, the religious leaders of that day who are listening to Jesus, he's implying in his parable that they are the tenants who had killed, who had stoned, and who had beaten the prophets. They could have easily looked back to Jesus and said, now, I mean, I haven't killed any prophets today. I haven't beaten or stoned any prophets. I'm innocent of that. They might have even said, you know, 
yeah, our ancestors, they were really bad. And that was just a bad thing, the things that they did. But we've learned. We're better than they are. We've grown. And what they're doing is actually minimizing their own wickedness. They're trying to hide their own wickedness. And that's not the attitude that we need. And that's where we get tripped up. The godly answer, when we are confronted by sin, the godly answer is the same thing that Paul says in another passage in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's by the grace of God that I am anything, that I'm able to do anything here. What Paul is saying is, I, I could have been there. I, I could have been, I, I could have been, that could have been me. Any of those sins could have been. Our attitude should be, Lord, please keep me from those kind of sins. I know that I am capable of it. That inside of me, uh, there's a capability of all sorts of evil. Keep me from treating people that way. Keep me from tr treating people the way that my ancestors did or the way that those people do. Or uh, Give me your grace to change and to change now. Please, Lord. This is the, the godly response. And this is a godly response because it's the right response. Because it's the truth. That, that we, inside of us, at least inside of me, I have the same potential, the potential for wickedness. That same wickedness that actually even put Jesus on the cross. It could have been me. In fact, you could take any kind of wickedness. You know, the wickedness of, of racism, something we hear a lot about today. If I had only grown up in a different place, at a different time, if only I had different parents, if only I didn't have parents. Or, or what, about, what about the wickedness of, of theft and robbery? What if I grew up in poverty? Would I be different? You see, here's the thing. If any number of these things would have happened to me, I would not be who I am. And this is the truth that we need to know. It is by the grace of God and only by the grace of God that I am what I am. This needs to be the cry of every Christian, that we are completely reliant on God's grace. And when we understand that, it changes our perspective on the world. It, help us, it helps us to, to understand and to see what's going on in our world and in our life and the way that we see people. It changes that. It changes everything. It is no longer about how good I am. It's all about how humbling it is that God would give whatever good gift he has given to me and to you. I'm asking you to believe the incredible. Because the truth is, you, me, we are really that bad. So bad that we deserve worse. We deserve punishment. And that's actually uh, where the religious leaders take this, because Jesus asks a question at the end of this. He says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes after that they had killed his son, right? Uh, when he comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now, this is where 
This is where the, the religious leaders show who they really are. They say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vi- their vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crops at harvest time. You see, here, I just want you to notice something. Uh, that is that, that it was them that brings up punishment. They're the ones who are very quick to say that those people deserve death. Clearly, they don't quite realize yet that Jesus is talking about them. Otherwise, they might have changed their tone. And remember, they don't believe that they are that wicked. And so, that's what they answer. They answer punishment. They don't answer grace. They answer punishment. But I want you to consider something here. And, and, it, and that is, the, is their answer correct? Did they give the right answer? Do those people deserve death? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You better believe it, right? I mean, if, if someone killed my son, I mean, I would want that, right? That's the human answer. So do they deserve death? Yes. But is that what really happened in the story of salvation? In the story of God, did that, did that really happen? Because what we realize is that this actually happened to Jesus. Okay? It's actually only a few days after he's telling this story that Jesus is actually killed. That those religious leaders, in conjunction with the, the Roman Empire, they actually kill the Son of God. And my question is, does God then go put those wretches to a wretched end? Does he kill them all? No. In fact, there on the cross, Jesus prays one of the most remarkable prayers that have ever been prayed. It's on the cross as as he's nailed there. He's dying. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the heart of God. this heart of God that we celebrate is God's grace. And and we celebrate that every time we gather in a place like this or in a place like this. We're celebrating the grace of God and yet that can become, even that can become a major tripping point for us. And that's the last thing that I wanna share with you. The tripping point in this text is God's unbelievable grace, that it is unbelievable. You know, I I think sometimes we are tempted to think that God's grace is just too good to be true. And and you know what they say about everything else in the world that is too good to be true. They say that uh, it's probably not true. Well, well, let me tell you, that is the opposite here, okay? It, It seems too good to be true. Yes, it seems incredible, but it is true. There is never an end to God's grace. But it doesn't make sense to us. In fact, um, we're much more like the religious leaders than we'd like to believe. We long for punishment. We want people to get what they deserve. And deep down, we even kind of want that for ourselves. But I don't know if you noticed, last week I, I filmed in, uh, I filmed a sermon in a, in a religious place. 
It was San Luis Rey Mission. And uh, I did that because, specifically because Jesus was picking on religious leaders. And so I thought, we need to go to a religious place to film that. And you saw all the religious stuff around me. Well, th today I, I decided to film in another religious place. I decided to film in our religious place because I didn't want us to think that, that you know, it was just the other people that are re the religious people that are taking it too far. You know, I, I wanted to point out something, and that is that Emmanuel Faith, you and I, us, we can be religious people like that. We can fall into the same temptations. We're tempted to, to trip over God's grace. We're tempted to think that, that there's a limit to God's grace. Or, or we say to ourselves that if we talk too much about grace, then people will just do whatever they want. We say, sure, there's grace, but there's also responsibility. And what we mean by that is that grace will only take you so far, but the rest, you've got to work for it. And can I tell you, there's nothing that is further from the truth than that. The Christian life is all grace. It has only ever been grace, and it always will be grace. It was grace that saved a wretch like me. It, it was grace that got me safe thus far, and it was grace that will lead me home. But tripping over grace is, is not just an Emmanuel faith problem. It's a Christian problem. In fact, it's been a problem ever since the beginning. It was a problem in Paul's days. And so Paul addresses it in the book of Romans. And it's going to be a problem for as long as we live. You see, as hard as it is, we need to be people who believe the incredible truth about God's grace. And yes, it's a lot. Yes, God's grace is bigger than we can comprehend. But I want you to write this last truth down. And, and this is the challenge that I have for you today. And it is, don't let the extravagance of God's grace trip you up. Instead, let it amaze you. Sit in wonder of it. And let it inspire you. And then let it empower you to go out and give it away. Let's be people who give grace away. Emmanuel Faith, let's become a community of grace that gives grace, that when people think of Emmanuel Faith, they think of a, a, a church that gives grace away. This is the only way that we can be people of grace is if we give it away. And I want us to be people who are so full of God's grace that it just pours out from us. Because you see, there's, there's no limit to God's grace. And because of that, there shouldn't be any limit to ours. You know, there'll never be a time when God will look at you and say, ooh, you know, you, you just showed too much grace. That's not gonna happen. And so let's be people who give grace away. Because it, if you remember, Remember, Emmanuel Faith, that's our verse. My grace is sufficient for you. Let's be people. Let's be people who 
who rely on the sufficiency of God's grace for everything we do.